A great many things, myself included, were conceived in the 1970s. Bick bestowed the world with a Promethean 3000 flares from its disposable lighter. A father and son team created a variation of Crazy Eights called Uno. And an explosion of breakthroughs in industrial science. The floppy disk, microprocessor, GPS, genetic engineering, universal product codes or UPCs, MRI scanners, and the artificial heart. The maturation of technology is both fascinating and frustrating. When products are new, they are often quite expensive. By the time they are made affordable, passe and out of date. And that trend is ever accelerating. Just look at the evolution of recorded music delivery. Phonographs were a phenomenon in 1877. Gramophones came a decade later. Radio another decade. Then there is a half-century lull before Columbia Records invented vinyl. Twenty more years until eight tracks and cassette tapes. Then CDs, MP3s, and streaming leapfrogged at a sort of simultaneous pace. I grew up with radio and records. And while discovering personal music preferences, the Columbia House Tape Club seduced me to their tribe. While their record club had been spinning since the mid-50s, they were forward-thinking enough to keep up with new media schemes by offering reel-to-reel recordings, A-tracks, and cassettes. Their accord was brilliant. Give a patron ten albums for a penny, which was to be taped to the mailback card and demarking individual choices from the stamp sheets of album covers derivable from their inventory. The postulant agrees to buy a few full-priced ones, plus shipping and handling, in return over a two- to three-year period. The gotcha comes within the fine print. For Columbia House, use the tactic of negative option billing, whereby they automatically send and charge the customer for featured albums of the month unless they expressly canceled. Absolutely no effort was made on the company's part to verify the adultivity of applicants. By the way, I stole that word from The Simpsons. Rival recording outfit BMG, which bought out Columbia House three decades later, copied the model, and I was able to join that affiliation with a comparable arrangement that provided other artists that Columbia House could not contractually distribute. All that music came in handy for road trips in my U78 Toyota Celica upgraded with a tape deck. Of course, my second car had a CD player. So, I joined the Columbia House and BMG CD Club. And I felt compelled to select the same stuff that I already owned on cassette because there was no way that I was riding around without Guns N' Roses, Metallica, the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, Zeppelin, The Who, Steve Miller Band, Jane's Addiction, and Pearl Jam. But even savvy entrepreneurs making precautionary advancements to stay relevant still end up eating themselves when getting too high off the hog. To be a titan of commerce is a cutthroat profession where undercutting competitors is often necessary. It is an understatement to say COVID-19 upended people's lives worldwide and had dire effects on businesses, restaurants, bars, theaters, both live and cinematic, comedy clubs, concert halls, etc., many of which are still struggling to recover. It also proved prosperous for companies specializing in household avocation, Zoom, on-demand streaming apps, podcasting, the gaming trade, both board and video, and takeout delivery food. Rare as the pandemic was, and continues to be, modernizing innovations to stable institutions is not unprecedented. Like when Domino's was the first to propound free pizza delivery, when Magnavox's Odyssey transported video games from the arcade to the living room, and when video cassette recorders, or VCRs, became inexpensive. 
devaluing ad dividends, and causing movie theater popcorn to explode to a 1,275% markup of its actual cost. Join me as I scatter curiosities through the parallel timelines of magnetic tape, joysticks, and pizza theaters. Nearly all sentient beings desire exhilaration, stemming back to our earliest ancestors. Storytelling, dancing, music-making, and sexual intercourse are amongst the most primitive practices of stimulation and have expanded over millennia into entire corporations. Studies show that playing is integral to human development, providing exercise, critical thinking skills, understanding of teamwork, rules, and hand-eye coordination. To boot, mood contributes to health. The human body releases chemicals that bolster the immune system when having fun. Sigmund Freud talked about the pleasure principle in the 1920s, in which he illustrated how humans and their animal counterparts instinctively seek pleasure. Unfortunately, there is a perception that joy must be earned, and overdosing on it leads to hedonism. Certain contours of amusement are passive, movies and television, while others are active, athletics, card playing, and video games. Yet all tell stories to some degree. Furthermore, modes of gratification are influenced by the epoch, culture, fads, and sensibilities that they dwell in. For example, public executions were celebrated canons of divertisement not that long ago and required people of esteem to deem the practices to be monstrously inhumane. At the start of the 20th century, moving pictures had already been entrenched as a lucrative, albeit silent, Passive, out-of-the-house revelry outfit. Extent a pace with active-type venues of penny arcades, presenting fortune-telling boxes, love testers, peep shows, and gun games. These state-of-the-art oddities were held within upright cabinets and accrued popularity between 1905 and 1910. Any thriving business is Darwinian regarding the adapt-or-die theory, and it has been a theme throughout time and memorial. When the jazz singer broke the theatrical sound barrier in 1927, it was looked upon as a vulgar rara avis that would never replace the silent-era silver screen. But it did, and careers were ruined. Concurrently, Another menace to cinema was lurking in the background. While not yet practical or economical, Philo T. Farnsworth unleashed the television the very same year. The stock market crash of 1929 and ensuing Second World War stopped sententious progression in those megacorps as resources and manpower were needed on the battlefield. But as soon as the military-industrial complex was installed, American troops were discharged and ready to invest in beguilement, in technicolor. But celluloids would be re-challenged with VTRs, videotape recorders, in the early 1970s, used by television stations and hospitals as a cheaper, more durable alternative to film. A tremendous appeal to recording analog audio and video onto magnetic tape, it could be erased and reused. All the while, the Dutch-born Philips firm was tinkering with a kindred device, the VCR, video cassette recorder, for studios and shoppers alike. Still, it was far too costly to wholesale at the time. 
which was hunky-dory with TV producers who were disenthused by the idea of viewers taking the reins and ignoring advertisements via the godlike power of time-shifting. Meanwhile, the old Penny Arcade abstraction was about to get a facelift by Nolan Bushnell and his partner Ted Dabney, whose Syzygy Engineering fashioned the first big arcade video game, Computer Space. And in 1972, the duo founded Atari. Their iconic A symbol, named Fuji for its resemblance to the central Japan mountain, is meant to be an artistic adumbration of the game that put them on the map, Pong, with each outer side delineating the opponents and a dividing line straight up the middle. Believe it or not, Pong was a dubious fluke. It came into being as a training inquest given to Atari newcomer Alan Alcorn to test his abilities. He was to build a mock-up, agnate to the virtual table tennis, that came with the Magnavox Odyssey, the first home video game console. Alcorn thought Odyssey's rendition was bland. His modifications made the fusillade more realistic and intricate by programming the paddle into eight segments, each portion hitting the ball at a particular angle relative to its on-screen position. Moreover, the ball sped up as volleys continued, resetting to the original speed once somebody missed. The first to reach 11 wins. Points are gathered when a disputant fails to hit the ball. Alcorn passed the test with flying colors, and Atari forged ahead to manufacture it. Their prototype was a black-and-white Hitachi TV fixed into a four-foot escritoire at Andy Capp's Tavern in Sunnyvale, California. It was a momentous hit, until it stopped working. When the unit was open to investigate the botheration, it was overfilled with quarters, a pleasant dilemma that was easily corrected. People were flocking to Andy Caps to get their pong on. Surprisingly, there was no one-player option to impugn the computer. A partaker needed an opponent, endeavoring a far more social experience than one might expect. According to Bushnell, quote, It was very common to have a girl with a quarter in hand pull a guy off a bar stool and say, I'd like to play Pong and there's nobody to play. In fact, there are a lot of people who have come up to me over the years and said, I met my wife playing Pong. And that's kind of a nice thing to have achieved. End quote. Naturally, Co-rival creators of arcade properties wanted to ride that wave. In Michigan, the 13-year-old Domino's pizza chain that inaugurated free delivery was synchronously innovating a campaign that guaranteed 30-minute delivery or it was free. Granted, the only menu items at the time were either a 12- or 16-inch pizza with 11 toppings to pick from and Coke-owned beverages. The 30-minute promotion was altered to $3 off if late and then terminated altogether by virtue of bad publicity in cases where people had been hit and killed by reckless delivery drivers trying to beat the clock. Lamentably, it wasn't the only time that one of Domino's advertisements resulted in death. A few years after the coming-out party of their red-spandexed anti-hero mascot, the Noid, a disturbed schizophrenic from Georgia named Kenneth Noid held two of the pizza chain's employees hostage, asserting that the Noid was a characterization of him. The incident ended with his suicide. Avoid the Noid, indeed. Scattered curiosity... The Noid was summarily reintroduced for a string of ads in 2011, 
complemented with the Noid Super Pizza Shootout video game. Getting back to video games, Atari responded to the pleads to bring the action to private residences with its release of Home Pong, which had been materializing for a year under a secret project codenamed Darlene, after one of their staffers. Even with arcade dominance and positive fanfare at the New York City American Toy Fair, Atari still had trouble finding financing. In a meeting to lure Sears to invest in its video computer system, a contraption appendaged with two joysticks, paddles, and the combat game at the multinationals tower in Chicago, Atari's presentation malfunctioned due to interference from the structure's colossal 279-foot antenna that operated on the same radio channel. Astonishingly, Sears was impressed enough and ordered double the amount that Atari was pitching, exclusively selling the gear under the appellation of Sears Telegames. Atari later self-branded them as the 2600. At the time, it contained the highest-performing consumer memory chip, which resides in the Smithsonian today. Of course, tons of imitations were peddled by distributors that Bushnell decried as jackals who let Atari do all the arduous work. These included Coleco's Telstar with three types of Pong and Nintendo's Color TV Game 6 with six archetypes of video tennis, soon to be pursued by the Color TV Game 15 with 15 variations. Bushnell even hijacked himself with a free-to-play adaptation, Puppy Pong, to be used in children's hospital offices and later in his Chuck E. Cheese restaurants. But before we go there, Betamax, the analog recording magnetic cassette tape, was finally made obtainable to all, touting less video noise, better lunachroma, and lower interference than their up-and-coming rival, the VHS. Betamax claimed superior sound and video quality, but its smaller size lacked capacity. Ironic that the device was denominated Beta rather than Alpha, as it came first. However, it should be noted that the lowercase Greek Beta symbol correlates to the shape that the tape makes while going through the VCR. Max stands for maximum. Sony developed the first camcorder, Betamovie, which was easy to carry around, but had no playback component. You needed a beta player for that. In the interim, Philips was teaming up with RCA, JVC, Panasonic, and Toshiba to excogitate their bulkier video home system medium into the boilerplate tape cassette standard, setting basic parameters. Amongst them, VHS had to work on a standard TV set and hold two hours of recording with a quality on par with broadcast television. It had to be able to interact with other VCRs and video cameras, be low cost, and easily manufactured. In the end, quantity prevailed over quality. By the time Beta got up to two-hour retention, it had lost the format war with VHS, who kept salt in the wound by continuing to expand content capabilities by enabling four-hour long play and six-hour extended play, also referred to as super long play. However, quality diminished markedly as hours increased. Americans slowly brought this newfangled wingding into their living rooms as the golden age of arcade video games was in full force. Cabinets migrated from arcades to bars, bowling alleys, pool halls, 7-Elevens, grocery stores, restaurants, gas stations and yielded an average of $35 to $40 per module daily, 
which translates to between 140 and 160 plays a day at 25 cents per play. Standalone arcades were such a draw to teens that parents worried about school skipping to cavort, especially after Atari fabricated a single-person variation of Pong, Breakout, where the ball broke off pieces of a brick wall. But Bushnell could see the end over the horizon and, in 1976, sold Atari to Warner Communications. Bushnell recognized a primary demographic being left out of the equation. Children. To corner the market on family-friendly arcade-themed structures with animatronic performers, Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theater was chartered in San Jose, California. It was initially going to be Coyote Pizza, but when their custom-ordered character costume resembled a rodent, they hastily ideated Rick Rat's Pizza, but settled on Chuck E. Cheese. On top of pizza, arcade games, and coin-slotted rides, one of the biggest draws was the animatronic shows, featuring Chuck E. Cheese and Munch's make-believe band, consisting of Krusty the Cat, later changed to Mr. Munch, on keys, Pasquale the Singing Chef on drums, Jasper T. Jowls on guitar, the Warbelettes on backup, and Helen Henney sharing lead vocals with Charles Entertainment Cheese. To bolster the robotics, costume characters provided customized birthday greetings and dance to If You're Happy and You Know It and Head, Shoulders, Knees, and Toes. Weary of mechanics becoming obsolete, the brains that birthed Atari withdrew from the Enterprise and devised Showbiz Pizza Place in Kansas City, Missouri, with the help of Robert L. Brock, who worked for the Holiday Inn franchise. In Bushnell's own words, quote, I chose pizza because of the wait time and the build schedule. Very few components and not too many ways to screw it up. End quote. Galvanized by the Disney animatronics that had seized the world's imagination at the New York World's Fair the previous decade, showbiz characters use updated methods of laying latex masks over the robot skeletons, allowing expressions to carry through. These fantastic gizmos ran on two audio tracks and two data tracks put through two Apple IIEs. Their mascot was Billy Bob Broccoli, a bass-playing bear from the Smoky Mountains who fronted the Rock of Fire explosion. Other band members included Looney Bird, who lived in an oil barrel a la Oscar the Grouch, and occasionally huffed gasoline before being rehabbed as an eccentric genius on vocals, Duke LaRue, a dullard dog in a spacesuit on drums, my favorite band member, Fats Geronimo, a silverback gorilla on keyboard, Beach Bear, a surfing polar bear on guitar, and Mitzi Mozzarella, a licentious cheerleading mouse, on vocals. The combo did pop, country, and classic rock covers separated by comedic skits. When Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theater succumbed to Chapter 11 bankruptcy, Showbiz bought it out, keeping the two franchises operating separately, but eventually capitulated back to the anthropomorphic rodent. And all locations morphed into Chuck E. Cheese over time. In overhauling Showbiz locations, the Rock of Fire Explosion Band was transformed into Munch's Make Believe Band. Billy Bob assumed the form of Pasquale P. Pie Plate. Looney Bird was now Pizza Cam. Beach Bear changed to Jasper T. Jowls. Fats Geronimo shifted to Mr. Munch. And Mitzi Mozzarella became Helen Henney. Today, you can still see the Rockafire Explosion at Smitty's Super Service Station in Sandy Hook, Mississippi. 
Billy Bob's Wonderland in Barbersville, West Virginia, and on YouTube. There is even a documentary of the posse procurable on iTunes. The correlation of pizza and arcade games is not inconsequential. As a pizza pie missing a slice within the Nameco company lunchroom inspired the maze action video game Pac-Man. Having taken one and a half years to actualize, it was decidedly non-violent and envisioned as a charming romp that girls and kids would enjoy. Quote, a cute game which appears to grow on players, something which cute games are not prone to do. End quote. For those of you who somehow do not know, Pac-Man eats all the dots in a labyrinth while avoiding pursuing specters unless a power pellet housed in the corners of the screen is swallowed, rendering the wide-eyed phantasms edible. And the ghosts are quite sophisticated and coated with artificially intelligent personalities. Blinky, the red one, chases Pac-Man outright. Clyde, orange, varies between chasing Pac-Man and running from him. And Inky, cyan, and Pinky get in front of Pac-Man to wall him in. This helps to keep the game convivial and ornate. By the way, the Japanese monikers for the spirits translate to chaser, ambusher, fickle, and stupid. Warp tunnels lie on either side of the board, allowing escape from one side of the screen to the other, requiring the skill of parallel visual processing. Or put another way, being aware of the character's surroundings, including prizes and foes. Levels are completed by clearing all of the pellets. Each successive level gets faster and the power pellets less effective until the ghosts are, at last, invincible. After 256 levels, the program suffers a hemorrhage of sorts, integer overflow, and the contraption cannot continue. A perfect score is 3,333,360 points. Almost instantly, arcades were outfitted with entire rows of Pac-Man, blowing asteroids and space invaders out of the galaxy. Voted Best Commercial Arcade Game of the Year, Pac-Man was also the first video game mascot, paving the way for Super Mario, Frogger, Link, Cubert, Kirby, Sonic, and others. Scattered curiosity, the insatiable circular character was initially baptized Puckman, but fears of offensive graffiti, use your imagination, called for a name change. Now, you may think the Spanish influenza was the most intense international virus of the 20th century, but in 1982, pecuniary jingle writers Buckner and Garcia went to number nine on the Billboard charts with their prognosis of the highly invasive Pac-Man fever. On a break from a writing session, the partners were in a restaurant and witnessed people crowded around the Pac-Man chiffonier, having no idea what it was. Once their turn, they played for two hours straight and wrote the song. It holds number 98 on the 100 Greatest One-Hit Wonders of the 1980s list. The duo attempted to catch lightning in a bottle again six months later with their dinkier follow-up, Do the Donkey Kong. I met Pac-Man at the height of his prevalence while visiting the 1982 World's Fair, a.k.a. the Knoxville International Energy Exposition. Set up in the scruffy little city's defunct Tennessee rail yard, a 266-foot sun sphere was built and still stands today, 
As you fellow Simpsons fanatics might recall from Season 7, Episode 20, Bart on the Road. With promotional slogans like Energy Turns the World and You've Got to Be There, it was the fifth best attended World's Fair in the United States, but only netted $57, a massive disappointment from the $5 million that was expected. Alongside the breakthroughs of touchscreen displays in Cherry Coke, the Peruvian exhibit unwrapped a mummy, the Egyptian one had $30 million in artifacts, Hungary had an enormous Rubik's Cube currently nested at a Holiday Inn nearby, and the fair's arcade sold anomalous tokens highlighting the big games of the day. Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Quicks, Gorf, Scramble, and Donkey Kong, the property that put another powerhouse at the forefront of substantial gaming significance, Nintendo, a company that had been in existence since 1889 with their Hanafuda playing cards. But Pac-Mania could not be ignored, forcing Atari to renounce their previous stance of not allowing arbiters to design games for their 2600 system. However, because of memory limitations, the 2600 could not manage many of Pac-Man's special effects, giving home players a lesser experience. Atari faced further backlash when their new and improved 5200 debuted, reclamating 2600 games unusable as they could not be retrofitted for backward compatibility. On the passive side of domestic regalement, the polythemes of moviedom were trying to curtail the most considerable peril perceived over their horizons, the VCR. Jack Valenti, head of the Motion Picture Association of America, reviled the, quote, savagery and ravages of this machine, end quote, when testifying to Congress. Quote, I say to you, the VCR is to the American film producer and the American public as the Boston Strangler is to the woman home alone, end quote. Judicially, Sony Corp. of America versus Universal City Studios ruled that VCRs were okay for individual use, but condemned the resale of motion pictures that launched with a theatrical release. But what about presentations made explicitly for non-public VCR consumption? Hmm. After a potentate of big-screen royalty broke her ankle on set of the China Syndrome, she was forced to innovate a new way to physically train. Refined during the capture of her abutting picture, The Electric Horseman, where she gleaned the interest of fellow cast members. Such good reception motivated the lending of her family name to workout studios, where she occasionally instructed. That profit led to Jane Fonda's workout book, followed by her revolutionary exercise video. It is credited with skyrocketing VCR sales, ushering in the residential fitness racket, sales of leg warmers, and bringing into the lexicon Feel the Burn and No Pain, No Gain. Selling at $59.95, 161 in today's dollars, there was an alternate all-music version for those who had memorized the routine and did not want to hear Jane yelling at them. As a result, the market became saturated with copycats hoping to cash in on the fad. Video games were suffering equivalently. Purchasers were embittered by the legions of games advertised with super cool graphics that were not integrated into the games themselves. Not to mention, home implements often lacked arcade earmarks, inciting the great coin-op video crash of 1983. Just months prior, Nintendo was on track to team up with Atari at the Summer Consumer Electronics Show, 
But when Warner stocks dropped from $60 to $20, negotiations fell through. And Nintendo switched its strategy by codifying unique terminology. The NES was an entertainment system instead of a video game system run by a control deck in lieu of a console on which you'd play game packs. Nintendo also embraced using third-party game generators but gave strict guidelines that game packs be cased in the standard Nintendo Gray and embedded with a 10 NES lockout chip preventing the transference of bootleg games. Knockoffs are easily identified by their black casing. They decided against joysticks over concern of hurting those who stepped on them or being destroyed from overuse and utilized an oblong rectangle with a cross-shaped joy pad ornamented with a start, select, and AB buttons. Even though the NES prided itself on a zero-insertion-force game cartridge slot to imitate the trendy VCR, you did need to use insertion-force when loading game packs, which slowly bent the contact pins, wearing and tearing the system, and letting in dust and dirt. By hook or by crook, an urban legend circulated that one could fix instrumental problems by blowing into the cartridge or control deck. In reality, it made them more corrosive due to mouth moisture. The national rollout had 17 games at its disposal, including Super Mario Brothers, Excitebike, Duck Hunt, and Hogan's Alley. Video rental shops started leasing out games and even whole NES systems, much to the ire of video game manufacturers. This is about the time when the Starbucks of video rental joints, before Starbucks as we know it existed, entered the scene. At its height, a new blockbuster video was being opened every 24 hours. It started with David Cook who supplied data services for oil syndicates in Texas with moderate success. His wife suggested he purchase a Video Works franchise in Dallas. When he was forbidden to paint the store yellow and blue, he quit and opened Blockbuster Video with 8,000 VHS and 2,000 beta tapes. Cook used his data entry skills to cater store inventories to local tastes, but no pornography. The video rental process went as such. Blockbuster paid a hefty flat fee for each video, about $65, and split revenues 60-40 with the studio. They got a better price than the self-determining retailers and focused on well-stocked new releases to be sold as previously viewed after a movie lost steam. Quote, Blockbuster was an unstoppable giant whose franchises swept across the country, shuttering mom-and-pop video stores left and right by furnishing a larger selection of new releases, pricing them at a lower point owing to the volume they worked in. Gone were the fragmented, independently-owned shops that were often unorganized treasure troves of VHS discoveries. In their place were walls of new releases, hundreds of copies of only a few titles, everyone watching the same thing, everyone developing the same limited set of expectations. They put the focus entirely on what was new rather than on discovering film history. End quote. Our family had been renting videos for as long as I can remember. My dad purchased one of the earliest saleable video camera components that required you to carry the entire VCR, in addition to spare batteries and bulky VHS tapes. It was cumbersome, heavy, and that poor guy wore it five days straight walking through Disney World in July. He soon learned that VCRs were fussy with respect to humidity and temperature shifts. Nevertheless, 
I was enraptured with our family's movie-making machine. I learned everything I could about it, adjusting the tracking, connecting it to the TV with an RF modulator, and recording techniques like editing out commercials, pulling tabs to prevent erasure, scotch taping over the tab hole to allow erasure, and using two VCRs to make clones, towing the line of applicable copyright laws. It was not long before the MPAA invested in technologies to halt duplication of studio releases by having the picture dim and brighten continuously until ultimately unwatchable, a dexterous deterrent called macrovision. This did not apply to broadcast television, thankfully, because with the programmable features of our VCR, I could preserve airings of two of the most influential television series of my life, which just so happened to come out one year apart, Mystery Science Theater 3000 and The Simpsons. I am confident you are all somewhat familiar with The Simpsons, so I will forgo the detailed rundown of its relevance. But I would be remiss if I did not make the low-budget, Peabody award-winning cult niche of heckling B-movies in Shadowrama that Frank Zappa tagged as, quote, the funniest fucking thing on TV, end quote, known to as many of you as possible. The premise of Mystery Science Theater 3000 is expertly explained in the theme song, but to avoid any infringement, I will summarize. An affable janitor named Joel, who works for two mad scientists in the sub-basement of the Gizmonic Institute, known as Deep 13, falls victim to a diabolical undertaking when they dispatch him into outer space aboard the Satellite of Love, force him to watch terrible films, and observe how long it takes for him to go insane. Joel resourcefully uses material inside the spacecraft to construct wisecracking robot companions, Tom Servo and Crow, to accompany him through the procedure each week. Spawned by comedian Joel Hodgson, who wanted to give it the feel of a pirate radio station in space, the concept of MST3K came from the 1972 film Silent Running, featuring a person stuck on a spaceship with the remnants of Earth's woodlands. His only comrades are three robot drones. On Thanksgiving Day, 1988, KTMA-TV in Minneapolis, Minnesota beamed this gem onto the airwaves. Devotees of the show, called Misties, were encouraged to keep circulating the tapes, meaning VHS tapes, to wrangle in new followers. MST3K has been rescinded and renewed several times on various networks with multiple casts, including two seasons on Netflix, until they also torpedoed it. But I am overjoyed to report that new episodes are available on their self-built streaming app, The Gizmoplex, made possible by generous nerds like me via the crowdfunding website, Kickstarter. Quote, With references to everything from Proust to Gilligan's Island, MST3K fuses superb, clever writing with wonderfully terrible B-grade movies, end quote. With all that in mind, it's probably unfazing to disclose that my first real steady employment in high school was working at Blockbuster Video. It was the perfect job. Getting free rentals and previewing new releases before the public fought over them, providing I was closing and opening the store in sequent shifts, made it ideal. Our location was independently managed when I was hired, and we all wore khaki pants, light blue button-up Oxford shirts, and neckties of our choosing. The staff was allowed to screen movies over the monitors, so long as they had a G or PG rating. PG-13 was permitted after 9 p.m. Suddenly... 
I was a force of nature when it came to movie trivia. Late fees were automatically added to a habitué's account, but the $1 cost for returning a VHS unwound was left up to the clerk checking them in and burdened with the monotonous task of rewinding them's discretion. I relished in punishing such offenses. Thank heaven for the VHS tape rewinder. Some of you younger listeners may not understand that VCRs were expensive, and overuse slowed these appliances down, especially the rapid-moving rewind function. In response to this dilemma, a separate device that only rewound tapes was invented. We had three of them lined up at the Dropbox because Blockbuster was adamant about ensuring that the VHS that a customer brought home was rewound to preserve their equipment. Of the utmost importance to me was submitting selection to the employee recommendation shelf. Getting five per month, there was no eluding your choices with a name tag prominently positioned on your chest. The most extraordinary moment of my teenage years happened in this store. One Friday evening, a gorgeous girl from my school, who was a year ahead of me, came in alone. It was peculiar because I had only ever seen her from afar, attached at the hip to her very buff Italian boyfriend. Other than recognizing each other from the hallways, we were strangers. She approached me at the rewinding station and asked for a suggestion. Gulp. Well, what kind of movie are you looking for? Comedy? Horror? Action? Sci-fi? Classic? Dramatic? Historical? Zany? Animated? I'm not sure. Can you give me a few suggestions? I do not think that I have ever given a customer such exquisite attention. I synopsized my wall selections for the month and why I called them. In the end, she opted for Young Frankenstein. I pushed it quite heavily. When checking out, she grabbed some add-on counter items, popcorn, soda, candy, and after ringing it up, I asked her if there was anything else. Um, yeah, would you want to come over after work and watch it with me? I told her that I didn't get done until midnight, which was just fine with me, but understood if it was too late for her to have a boy her parents never met in their house. Having the next evening off, I suggested we go on a proper date to a movie theater. She smiled in agreement, and my co-workers were amazed. Alas, I realized I was a rebound, purported to make her ex jealous after temporarily breaking up, but we did go on that date and had a lovely time. I was not heartbroken, it ended as rapidly as it began, and it felt like a scene from a movie itself. But it was an omen of what was to come. The very next week, the store went corporate, and the staff had to wear ugly, itchy polo shirts, which we also had to pay for, the employee recommendation shelf was eliminated, and most painful of all, no more movie playing. We were required to play a 25-minute Entertainment Weekly monthly promotional reel on a continuous loop, which unfairly made every sales associate vehemently despise Lisa Gibbons. No matter, I'd be off to college within a year when Blockbuster's inventory was invariably rocked by the advent of the newest mode of media delivery, the digital video disc, or DVD, though the Oxford English Dictionary at the time called it the digital versatile disc. To stay clear of their own setup entities, the Technical Working Group, TWG, consisting of representatives from Dell, IBM, Hewlett-Packard, Microsoft, Apple, and Compaq's, banded together saying that they would only adopt one system for disks, resulting in 4.7 gigabyte single-side disks, 
and 8.5 gigabyte dual-layered ones. Studios were forced to compose title sequences for both old and new movies, including chapter breakdowns and interactive attributes, to justify the rebuying of favored films on the new layout, whose light 0.58 ounce weight made it optimal for mailing. A fact that did not go unnoticed by Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph when founding Netflix in 1997. Though their initial notion was to ship VHS tapes, but it was far too expensive and impractical. So, they did a dry run with DVDs. When Hastings sent one to his home and it arrived in perfect condition, they knew that they had found a winning approach. Legend has it that Netflix sprouted from Hastings getting a $40 late fee from a blockbuster video copy of Apollo 13. Yet hypocritically, Netflix started with the exact same technique of due dates and rake-offs, which was quickly scrapped in favor of tiered monthly membership contributions that included free shipping and no late fees. Depending on tier level, a subscriber could choose standard DVDs or Blu-ray discs at a volume of one, two, or three at once. For the first time in a decade, Blockbuster faced a severe competitor that could manifest their stockpile of VHS tapes obsolete, prompting them to seek a new CEO, which they picked up from an outgoer at Taco Bell. Warner Brothers tried to step in and grant their earlier pledge, DVDs before they went on sale to the public in exchange for 40% of rentals, but Blockbuster foolishly said no and ended up losing out to Walmart, who took the deal. Remarkably, the aforementioned arcades that had lost their momentum in the 80s were now gaining repute thanks to the ameliorated graphics of Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter, in addition to sit-down games and redemption games, you know, the ones that you get tickets for. These factors gave rise to showbiz pizza-like establishments for grown-ups, akin to Dave and Buster's, doing the restaurant-bar-arcade formula, jettisoning quarters and tokens for refillable credit cards. Blockbuster attempted to infiltrate that arena by experimenting with Blockbuster Block Party recreation complexes that had games, rides, and a restaurant. They also invested in Discovery Zone, which it conclusively lost to Chuck E. Cheese. In the early 2000s, Netflix was at the mercy of the United States Postal Service and $57 million in debt, and offered themselves up to Blockbuster for $50 million, which Blockbuster unequivocally dismissed. Big mistake. Huge. They instead shifted their focus on acquiring Hollywood Video, another franchise I worked at briefly, until the FTC intervened, which ended up saving them millions in the long run. It dodged a second and third bullet by avoiding the purchase of Circuit City and Columbia House. After those tactics failed, Blockbuster tried to capitalize on DVDs by mail, and Netflix sued. 2003 was the first year that DVD rentals outsold VHS, but even DVDs were being threatened by DVRs and TiVo. Unlike Blockbuster, the folks at Netflix had more foresight and could see which way the wind was blowing when they added streaming capabilities. But it was painfully slow, and the limited selection comprised mostly of movies found in discount bins of big box stores. But they had done it. They slayed the blue and yellow dragon. On September 23, 2010, Blockbuster filed for Chapter 11 over $900 million in arrears. Quote, Blockbuster, if it isn't already, 
is going to go into the Harvard Business Review for how not to run a business or how to run a business into the ground. Digital would have changed Blockbuster's business for sure, but it wasn't its killer. That credit belongs to Blockbuster itself. End quote. The last standing Blockbuster video remains in Bend, Oregon, and has been rented out as an Airbnb for 90s-themed sleepovers. Ironically, there is a new sitcom series titled Blockbuster that is now streaming on Netflix. If Netflix wasn't singular enough to lay the groundwork for bingeable material, how about these criteria for those working there? Employees at Netflix get unlimited vacation and can receive any portion of their pay in stocks so long as they can pass the keeper test. If a supervisor deems an employee unworthy to be fought for, said employee is let go. Quote, you gotta earn your job every year at Netflix. End quote. When shifting from DVDs to mostly streaming services, Netflix went from being the postal service's most prominent customer to having the most internet streaming traffic. An estimated 42% of people watched on computers, 25% on the Nintendo Wii, 13% on PlayStation 3, and 12% on Xbox 360. And several new TVs come with a Netflix button on the remote. When the company announced two separate charges for streaming and mail-in service, the stock fell from $299 a share to $130, and Netflix suffered a mass exodus. I was one of them. The solution? Start making their own content that could only be seen on their platform. Finding success right out of the gate with House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. When a Netflix original is ordered, they pay for everything from the top and usually grant productions two seasons, no matter the size of its fandom. After receiving their first Primetime Emmy Award and Golden Globe nominations, Old guard gurus like Steven Spielberg shook in their diamond booties and lobbied against streaming media to be eligible for such awards. Beyond their originals, Netflix picked up existing series with built-in audiences like Arrested Development and MST3K. That's when I renewed my subscription. And Sony encouraged Netflix to include all episodes of Breaking Bad before its fourth season network premiere and succeeded in doubling its viewership through what has become known as the Netflix effect. Never resting on their laurels, they have since added the differential that permits downloading for offline playback, a considerable boon for we commuting New Yorkers, and two years later, they unveiled the Skip Intro feature. In 2019, Netflix was granted membership to the Motion Picture Association of America, making it the first streaming service to receive such a distinction. And they followed up by purchasing Grauman's Egyptian Theater in Hollywood to screen dedicated events. Since COVID-19 has swept the planet, Netflix added 16 million new subscribers, raised their monthly fees, and continues to pay nothing in taxes. So what does the future hold for our lingering IPOs? Well, Netflix is leading the way with interactive habiliments where you can direct the story via your remote control. Chuck E. Cheese is attempting a reimagination of fancier undertakings a la Dave & Buster's, under the sobriquet Chuck E. Cheese Pizzeria and Games by getting rid of tokens and the animatronics and replacing them with Chuck E. Super Discount Cards, Chuck E. Token Cards, and a dance floor hoping to lure in more adults. Atari has announced plans to open hotels which will enhance virtual reality on a large scale, and Jane Fonda, age 82, 
has constructed a new workout video for those in her age bracket in response to the particular home fitness needs brought about by the pandemic. Feel the burn. to help us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show